Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your people and kindle in us the fire of your love. Amen. A wealthy man summons three of his slaves and entrusts each of them with a measure of talents. Then he goes away for a long time. While he is away, two of his slaves invest his money and make huge profits for the master. The third, meanwhile, digs a hole and buries the single talent entrusted to him. When the master returns, the two who made the profit are commended, gifted with more wealth, and invited into the joy of their master. But the third is called wicked, lazy, and worthless, and cast into the outer darkness. This story is often associated with good stewardship, as in God, the master, has entrusted each of us with talents, which may mean money or other assets, abilities, or strengths. And God expects us to invest those gifts boldly and creatively for the kingdom of God. If we do so, God will be pleased and will reward us with more of the same. But if we are anxious or timid or fall short of what God desires, we will be considered worthless and will suffer the grave consequences of the master's displeasure. I find it pretty hard to square the image of God as a bitter and greedy slave master with the God Jesus describes throughout the Gospels, the God who privileges the poor, feeds the hungry, clothes the naked, blesses the meek, frees the prisoner, and protects the widow and orphan. It's hard to see the kingdom of God in a world where those who have plenty receive still more, while those who have close to nothing lose even the little they have and then then suffer God's wrath on top of that. This is a story about taking risks, to be sure, but looking at it through the lens of capitalism and wealth may obscure what Jesus really means to show us. So first, some context. In in Jesus' day, talents, a talent, was not a small coin or even a wad of cash. It was a, uh, talent was a hefty, precious metal, usually gold or silver, that that weighed about uh, between 80 and 130 pounds. A single talent then was worth 15 to 20 years of an ordinary laborer's wage, perhaps a lifetime of income. In other words, a talent represented a staggering amount of money to the crowd of peasants around Jesus, a jackpot sum that that only the wealthiest might possess. And so if someone had such wealth, how, how would they have gotten it? Typically, by lending money to, at exorbitant rates to struggling uh, farmers. Often the people who took such loans at rates between 60 and 200% interest did so out of desperation, putting their, their fields up as collateral in a last-ditch effort to save their livelihoods and their families. A single season of drought or a disabling injury or illness could be devastating. With his ancestral land then foreclosed, the poor farmer would be forced into day labor without any safety net, without any means to restore his family's land or or dignity. 
This is the situation Jesus describes in the parables, in the parable of the talents. It's the three slaves in the story are the wealthy masters, uh, retainers, managers, these middle, middle managers who oversee the land and its workers and collect the debts and, and keep the profits coming while the master travels. Everybody knows that they're also free to make a little extra by charging the farmers additional fees, additional interest, as long as they keep the money flowing for the master. The more money they make for him, the better and more comfortable their own lives become. What happens when we read the parable of the talents through this cultural and economic lens rather than our own? A member of the wealthy 2% gives three of his most trusted workers a jackpot to play with. The name of the game is exploitation, and the only rule is turn a profit. The bigger, the better. Two of the slaves do exactly as they're told. They take their talents out into the world and double them on the backs of the poor. Who knows how many fields they seize, how many farmers they impoverish, how many families they destroy. It doesn't matter. They fulfill the bottom line. They make a profit. When the master returns and sees they've accomplished on his behalf, he's thrilled. He invites the two enterprising slaves to enter into his joy, the joy of further wealth, further profit, further exploitation. But the third slave? The third slave in the story opts out. He decides that his master's character is greedy and corrupt and he no longer wants to participate in a dishonest system of gain, a system based on oppression and injustice. Knowing full well what it will cost him, this slave buries the talent in the earth. He hides it, literally taking it out of circulation, putting it where it will do no further harm to the poor. Is it any surprise that the master abuses and banishes the third slave when he returns from his journey? His failure to cooperate with this ruinous system exposes the master's corrupt and true nature. Jesus' listeners would have would need no help recognizing the third man as the hero of the story. Burying money that had been entrusted to you on behalf of someone else was considered the honorable practice, stipulated and protected by Jewish customary law. The surprise would have been that this slave chose to do so. This slave had been morally bankrupt. He had abused those below him long enough to have gained his master's trust. And now, and we don't know how it happened, he suddenly has a change of heart. In the words of the New Testament scholar William Herzog, the third man becomes a whistleblower. Herzog points out that at great cost to himself, the third slave's Slave names the exploitation, the same exploitation he once colluded in and had benefited from for years. He now relinquishes his claim on wealth and comfort, calls out the master's greed and rapacity, I knew you were a harsh man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed, and accepts 
the ostracism and poverty that inevitably follow from his choice. Unlike so many of Jesus' parables, this is not a parable of the coming kingdom of God. The people gathered around Jesus would have recognized it as an all-too-familiar description of their current reality. This is a parable about the world as we occupy it now, a parable about what faithfulness looks like in this world, a parable about complicity and the high stakes involved in ending it, a parable about opting out of systems of oppression and exploitation, even and especially when we are accustomed to benefiting from such systems. A parable about saying enough is enough when it comes to the abuse and marginalization of the world's most vulnerable people. A parable about turning the present reality upside down in the name of love. It is also a parable about the rejection, impoverishment, and loneliness we might sometimes suffer if we take seriously the call of God. It is a demanding parable, especially to those of us who are comfortable. But consider this. Jesus asks nothing of us that he has not done himself. Just days after telling this parable, he was cast into the outer darkness of crucifixion, torment, and death. Like the third slave, he was deemed worthless and expendable by the people who wielded power and influence in his day. Like the third slave's costly talent, he was buried in a rock-hewn tomb. Apparently, in the economy of God, there is a worthlessness more precious than all the money in the world. May we find the courage to embody it. And in so doing, may we enter into the joy Jesus promised to all those who abide in his love and who love one another as he loved us. The joy of true peace and plenty among all people. The joy of the one who no longer calls us slaves but friends. The joy of the already here and yet still coming reign of God. Amen.